Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Eleanor G, I think the Stick to Wrestling podcast is swell. I want to thank the Turtles for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone podcast. That was the worst one ever. I love it. Uh, a couple of things. Please join our Facebook group. We have well over a thousand people who are in the group. We talk, hang out, talk wrestling, talk whatever. Just ask to be invited and you're in. Secondly, if you want to follow me on Twitter, just put in the words John McAdam and follow the guy who has wrestlers fighting with chairs in his avatar. Two quick things before we get rolling. Number one, I want to thank Mark Rock and Roland for his generous gift. I really appreciate it. Very thoughtful of you, sir. And friend of mine, friend of the show, uh, Maryland's Terrapin superfan, Mike Fahey. Get better. The guy went out and had a stroke. He's okay, but Mike, stop doing that and get better. Now, unbelievably, Starcade 86 now is 35 years old this month, and we're going to talk about it. I want to bring on popular guest Steve Crawford, who stepped in last minute and volunteered to be the guest. I really appreciate it, Steve. Welcome back. Oh, I always love the wicked goodness that is the Stick to Wrestling podcast, so not a problem. All right, well, thank you very <laughs> much. And uh, so, yeah, Starcade 86, let's talk about it taking place in both Atlanta and Greensboro, North Carolina. First match, Tim Horner and Nelson Royal against Don Kernodal and Rocky Kernodal. Steve, I had never seen this match before because the VHS tape I got about 35 years ago started in the middle of the Jimmy Garvin versus Brad Armstrong match. So, and, and this is pretty much someone recorded the satellite feed, and this is what everyone saw back in 86 if you wanted to see the entire show rather than the, the highlight tape that they put out, the two-hour highlight tape. What did you think of this match? Well, you know, first, first uh, before the match, we got to see uh, Bob Cottle and uh weaver right what's weaver's first name johnny weaver yep and i was struck i had never noticed the gig marks on johnny weaver's forehead before i mean that dude it looked like he was trying to grow crops in his forehead i mean he's not abdullah of course but uh serious gig marks for johnny weaver it was interesting just to see the difference in the way the crowd was lit at that time it really wasn't lit at all you know there was just kind of like a light over the ring and, and that's all you saw there that's how I like it. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I thought Tim Horner was by far the best worker in the match. Rocky Kernodal, I mean, really all-time overbite on that guy. I mean, right up there with like <laughs> Rob Gibb of the Beaches, Freddie Mercury. I mean, if he was famous, he could have been in the all-world overbite club. Um, the Freddie Mercury of professional wrestling. <laughs> that's you, Rocky. <laughs> That's it. I mean, his upper lip probably feels a temperature change when he walks outside about three seconds before his lower lip does. So <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, I'm sure he's a good man. You know, I thought it did what it needed to do. You know, it, it was it's a settle in match, right? It's let's get settled yep. in and, you know, crowd get in your seat and realize the wrestling show has started. Nothing was embarrassing. I thought Don Cronodal looked a little heavy here. Um, he did. I noticed that, too. He was still moving well. I, I thought, oh, he's going to look really slow, but he was still moving well in the ring. But it was about this time frame that a guy that looked like Don Kernodal could not 
be a star in a major league company anymore. You know, you couldn't, you could put him in the first match in this situation, but you really couldn't do a whole lot else with him at that point. The other thing that was really interesting to me is a guy who grew up on, on Memphis wrestling. Uh, did you notice the referee for the match? Oh, uh, I did not. Sonny Fargo, the legendary roughhouse slash nuthouse Fargo. So if you grew up in Memphis, you grew up once a year. Jackie Fargo gets roughed over by these heels. He comes out with this promo. You guys have gone too far. I'm calling my brother Roughhouse Fargo. And the storyline was kind of like he was in a mental institution, but he'd come out once a year. Have you ever seen clips of, of Roughhouse Fargo? I have, and that, that story always cracked me up. How, oh, yeah, you can leave the mental institution to go wrestle for a couple of weeks, and then you know, just come back where you're on furlough. Don't worry about it. I, I mean, it was it was just a pure wild man. I, I mean, he was a very average-looking guy, but he's he's you know throwing forearms at everybody. He's attacking Jackie. He's attacking the ref. And then he's, he runs out to the front row and sits in some woman's lap and drinks her Coke and eats her popcorn. And, <laughs> and, and I mean, it drew huge money every time they did it. It was a special attraction like once a year. And I was kind of, I remember as a little kid thinking, holy cow, this guy's incredible. Why doesn't he wrestle here all the time? Because, <laughs> you know, I wasn't smart to the business. I just see him destroying these heels, you know, every time he came in. So, you know, and then you see him in this situation. And he's just this very mild-mannered old man with a gray beard, you know. So, so it was a kick for me to see Sonny Fargo because I don't think I'd ever seen him referee before. So that was a first for me. Okay, yeah, I I was actually kind of used to him being in the Carolinas as a referee, so it, it just kind of went right over my head. I mean, Tim Horner was, you know, let me go back. Don Kernodal was a guy who I, I always kind of thought. Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condry kind of won the lottery as far as being guys who were who they were. They were good workers. They found the right gimmick and the right tag team. And, you know, they made money in wrestling like that could have been Don Kernodal and it could have been Tim Horner. Tim Horner was an excellent in-ring performer. I mean, he was really good, but he couldn't talk and he didn't have physical charisma. And that doomed him to make him what he was. He was, you know, kind of a star in Smoky Mountain Wrestling when it first started, but, you know, that's Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And in the NWA, this is his place, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, I mean, I thought he looked really good in this match. But, you know, I mean, he breaks in at the same time that the Road Warriors are becoming the sensation. You know, so so you've gone from looking like a regular guy or having a regular good body to now you have to, you know, have these enhanced physiques and, and, you know, be a steroid monster to really be on top. So, you know, his timing was bad. And, you know, it was, it was interesting, you know, to see Nelson Royal in there. I, one of the things that, you know, we can talk about later, but, you know, the ages of some of these guys on the card were really surprising to me. And, and Nelson Royal was over 50 at the time. And he did fine, but it, it's kind of like, why is grandfather in the ring? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember Tim Horner was sort of feuding with the Road Warriors in 1984 in Georgia, if you can believe that. And yeah, yeah. I, I saw that clip recently, and he gets like this fluke pin over one of the Road Warriors. Hawk. Yeah, yeah, he gets this fluke pin over Hawk, and then uh, the Road Warriors go crazy, and they hurt Brad Armstrong, who's in contention for like an NWA title shot. And 
yeah, it was uh, it was actually a pretty well done angle at the time the way they did it. But well, but yeah. I remember one time the Warriors worked over Horner and Horner goes over to the interview podium. He's like, I'm gonna get these guys. I don't care if I have to get a chair or a stick or what. I'm like a <laughs> chair or a stick, you lose with me, pal. Yeah, I mean, boy, you know, he he failed promo class. He, you know, I I don't know where he was when promo class was held, but he just could not get <laughs> a promo to save his life. He had yeah. the flu that week. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, but like I said, great worker. Um, next up, we have Jim Garvin versus Brad Armstrong. Once again, I saw this in its entirety for the first time last week. Out of all the people in the match, Precious is working the hardest. She is going nuts out there. Precious is working really hard. You know, I, I thought the best competition between the guys was who had the best perm. I mean, those were two like world-class perms going, you know, and then you had Scrappy McGowan's here, which was also, he's like balding on top and he's got this stringy white hair and he looks like the hippie chick from the Muppets that's got the long hair. (laughs) He he looks like Tommy Rich's uh, ugly brother. Yes, yes, he does. Again, you know, it was a settle in match. Okay. the, The show's starting now. Get back from the concession stand. You know, I thought Garvin's entrance in that era was really good. You know, he had the flashy clothes and and he was just, you know, an over the top character and just a Weasley heel. You know, he wasn't getting like legitimate real heel heat. It was just kind of grab the trunks and pull the hair kind of stuff. You know, it was a solid match. When Shivani, Tony Shivani at the 10 minute mark said, oh, we're at the 10 minute mark. You, you pretty much knew it was a draw at that point. You know, they, they really weren't calling times the rest of the night that, that I noticed. But for what it was, it was fine. Nobody got hurt. You know, it, nobody came out for the worse after the match. Yeah, Jim Garvin, when he first introduced that gimmick in 82, I mean, I really thought it saved his career. I mean, he was going nowhere before he turned heel and became gorgeous Jimmy. And I mean, he, he was great after that. I really enjoyed him. I noticed that when Tony said, oh, 10 minute mark, these guys started speeding up because I get it. It's the second match. You're not supposed to blow everyone out of the water. And right. they sped it up at, at that point, And it was good. I like Brad Armstrong. He falls into that. Wow. Should have been in a Midnight Express type deal. But I really thought Jimmy Garvin needed to get over here. I, I guess it doesn't matter because the only people who saw it were the ones who were in the arena. But I just thought Jimmy Garvin was a lot more pushable than Brad Armstrong. Yeah, I I, I would agree. In 1986, he was. I mean, Brad was easily the better in-ring worker. But you you could have easily had Precious interfere, get a cheap victory. And, you know, Brad doesn't look worse because he lost because Precious interfered or something. But but you were right. She was she really worked extremely well on the She kind of knew when to put the attention on her and when not. I mean, I was really impressed by her ringside presence there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, we're talking about perms. I know this is kind of sound dumb, but by this point in 1986, look, kids, the disco era is over. And so are guys <laughs> having perms like that. I mean, Brad, you know, I, I'm a big fan, but he had that, that, like I said, that insane 1978 perm. And anytime he did an interview, he was wearing eyeglasses. And it's like, dude, you know, you want to look better, lose the glasses. It doesn't matter if you can't see during your TV promo. 
Yeah, I mean, he just, he was like Horner. He just couldn't put everything together. You know, he he had the in-ring aspect, but, you know, in terms of just connecting with the crowd as a baby face and having that baby face fire, and he just never had it. You know, he I don't think he could have worked especially well as a heel. I mean, maybe in a spot, like you said, the Midnight Express, where he's not really talking, maybe in that sort of situation. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he just, he got pigeonholed where he was, and he just couldn't get out of it. Yeah, and like I said, it's too bad because he was a talent. All right, next up, the Barbarian and Pez Watley, both managed by Paul Jones, against Baron Von Rashka and Hector Guerrero. Steve, I watched this promotion religiously in 1986. I loved it. And I cannot remember for the life of me how Baron Von Rasch could turn babyface. I mean, do you remember? Was it like just something dumb where, you know, he gets hit by Barbarian and gets mad? I I have no clue. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I really wasn't watching a lot in 1986. I really just started watching about this time frame. So, you know, everything was kind of new to me right around this time frame. But yeah, I mean, what a bizarre tag team, Hector Guerrero and Baron Von Roski. I, I wrote down they were the double E connection, El Paso and East Germany. <laughs> Hector got a big pop before this match. And I've always said Hector and Chavo Guerrero are two of the most are the one of the most underrated tag teams of all time. And I really believe had they brought in Chavo Guerrero, they would have been on the same level as the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express. I really believe that that's how good they were. They had some great matches with the Rock and Roll Express in in Mid-South. And they, in my opinion, they should have brought in Chavo made them heels at first, the way they were in Mid-South and Florida, and then eventually turned them babyface. And again, you, two great feuds gift wrapped for you versus yeah. the Rock and Roll Express and then versus the Midnight Express. Yeah, I agree. I love Chavo as a worker. I loved, you know, when he was Mid-South during this era, and I, I thought he was just fantastic. And I think they could have gotten a really good push as a, a tag team. One of the things that was really interesting to me in this match was Hector did an over-the-top rope dive, which was so unusual for that era. But instead, of it was on the Barbarian. Instead of the Barbarian just standing out there waiting to catch him, Von Rasky came over and kind of held the Barbarian in place so it looked a little more realistic that he would yes. be in position. So that was that was a very interesting spot for its era. It was. I mean, this match, it wasn't a bad match, but it definitely felt like filler. Oh, oh yeah. and and. Rasky, his body, he looked like he'd been in a cave for like two years. I mean, <laughs> it's like, when is the last time you've seen the sunlight? I mean, he was so white and it, it did seem very thrown together. And Pez Watley, you know, decent in-ring worker. I never understood the, the Shaska Watley, you know, gimmick. I, I didn't understand what that was supposed to be. It, it went over my head. So, yeah, it was like... We need to have a match. These four guys are in the promotion. Let's throw them together and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's a huge event. It's Starcade, And you want every match to mean something. But in a way, you also want to use everybody to make it that huge event. Like, I'm kind of torn here because I feel like, you know, okay, they used everyone. It was a big event. It was also a four-hour show, which is a bit much. Yeah. Yeah, one of my my notes. It's 1986. 
you've got Baron von Raschke is, is the German baby face and he gets the hot tag at the end and the crowd goes crazy and he's goose stepping and eye gouging. <laughs> and that's how he oh. for the finish. It's like, you know, only only in 1980s pro wrestling can can this be the baby face. Yeah, I mean, and you know, they brought him in specifically because um, Crusher Khrushchev got hurt. So you had the tag team of Ivan Koloff, Nikita Koloff, and Baron von Raschke feuding with Dusty Rhodes and the Road Warriors. So we've got Baron standing next to Nikita and feuding with the Road Warriors, and it did not look good. No, no. I mean, again, you know, when I talk about the guys and the agents, um, you know, on the card, I mean, he was only in his, you know, let, let me, he was 46, but he looked much, much older than that. I mean, he just did not look like he trained at all at that part of his life. No, he was one of the first wrestlers when he came in to challenge Bruno in early 77. I was like, wow, this guy looks kind of old, but it turns out he was just born looking old. Yeah, yeah, but. You know, it, it was, again, it was veterans. They knew what they were doing in there. It didn't take up a lot of time. It, it was fine for what it was. Yeah, I, I agree. All right, next up, we have the Kansas Jayhawks. Dutch Mantel is now from Kansas against <laughs> Ivan Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev. This is our first title match. It's a no-DQ match. I have no idea why. The first thing I noticed is Bobby Jaggers and Dutch Mantel had fancy ringwear made. Like they have vests and chaps with like the Kansas Jayhawk colors and not a good investment. This tag team no. did not last long. No, no. It, it uh, I mean, it was a good kind of like territorial Southern brawling tag team. But, you know, it was it was kind of too late to give those guys a push in a major league, you know, uh, especially, you know, Jaggers. He looked like you know, Phil Hickerson's cousin. He's just a big fat guy with no definition at that point. I mean, I've seen Mantell wrestle my entire life and I'm still shocked that it looks like he's wearing a fur coat underneath his wrestling gear. Well, <laughs> it's it's just, always been like that. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's almost like a carnival thing. You know, it's like, Dutch, we love you, but there's something you can do about that. You know, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Dude, take ten. Talk to Hulk Hogan for ten minutes and figure this one out. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, they said the backstory was that they they'd had a tournament for the titles and and you know those were the two teams in the finals and the Russians had won. So now they're making a no DQ. And I thought you know Mantel and and Jaggers worked pretty well in kind of a southern brawling style of match, which you know was probably pretty much all they could do. I always, you know, even uh, as Ivan aged, I was kind of amazed at how good a shape he stayed in. You know, I mean, his ring work to me was always very solid. And then you had Barry Darso in, in the other Russian gimmick. No, I, they, I noticed they announced he was from the Soviet Union. So I guess he had transplanted. He was no longer the sympathizer. He had, you know, gotten through the embassy or something at that point. Oh, <laughs> but uh you know, I thought it was a solid work, nothing spectacular. It went about how you thought it should go. And uh, Mantel brings out the whip, which is, you know, kind of unusual for him to use that in the ring. In, in Memphis, it was almost more show than he would actually use it. But he did in this case. But then, you know, the Russians use the chain at the end and get the pinfall. And, you know, another kind of solid, unspectacular match. 
I always thought that Dutch Mantel was pushable on a national level. I know he was a little bit small, but man, that guy could talk people into the building. I was always a huge Dutch Mantel fan. I'm not saying make him NWA champion, but there's a lot you could do with a guy like that. Just no one took advantage of it, except for Memphis, obviously. I mean, Bobby Jaggers, I've said this on the show before. When he was in Florida in 1980 and 1981, I thought I was seeing a future superstar. He was so good in the ring. He could do interviews. He had charisma. And something happened along the way because I remember seeing him in Southwest Championship Wrestling in 83 and just being like, okay, who's this guy that you know used to be Bobby Jagger? Because he sucks now. And it didn't things didn't get better in 1986. Bobby had put on a lot of weight. I thought he did good interviews, but at the same time, and he was all right in the ring, but it's 1986, man. You can't look like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That 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 was something that really stood out to me. And you're right about Mantel. Uh, you know, he could really go. I remember when they brought Savage into Memphis, and those guys had worked years previous in the Goulas territory. And, I mean, Mantel kept up with Savage. I mean, those guys, the speed at which they were going was like nothing else you were seeing in the promotion at that time. So when he was, you know, motivated, you know, he could he could really keep his spot in the ring as well as being just a fantastic promo, like you say. So, yeah, I think they could have done more with him. Yeah, I mean, you know, look past the size and say, look, you know, what can we do with him? Because he would have been an asset. Now, let me, and Ivan Koloff, I, I put have this in my notes. He's 44 here. He could still bump and go, but he looked old in the face. And putting him with Nikita, I think, aged him a little bit in my eyes, certainly. Yeah, I mean, you knew he was an older wrestler at that time. Uh, but to me, he kept in shape. And he, he wasn't like some of the guys we saw on this card, like Jimmy Valiant and, you know, Baron Von Raschke that, that just let themselves go. You know, he worked hard and they transitioned him kind of into that mentor role. And, and I think that was good for him. And I think it was good for the guys he was working with. You know, I think it, it, it made sense that here's this guy who's had all this success in the business and he's going to take you under his wing now. So it worked for me. I, I thought it was fine. I mean, it worked for me too. It just, like I said, it made him, like you said, more of a mentor and less of a, a main event wrestler, which I, I had always seen him as. And now he's, you know, underneath Nikita, but Hey, father time remains undefeated. Steve, a little bit of a detour here from my notes. Ready? Peacock sucks. It is constantly <laughs> buffering and crashing. It had already crashed twice. And I'm less than an hour into this. And it says, sorry, there was a problem loading this video. Try again later. It's like, work for God's sake. Yeah, I, I was constantly getting, like, it would freeze up. And it would say, do you want to resume from where you are or start over? And I'm like, you know, this is a four-hour-long pay-per-view. I don't want to start over. And I kept, you know, worrying about, like, oh, my gosh, well, you know, is this going to reset? So, yeah, it, it's it's not great. That's for sure. YouTube TV used to do that to me. I'd be sitting there watching a football game. It's like, hey, you've been inactive for a long time. Like, yeah, the game's on. Get out of here. But they don't do that anymore, thankfully. I mean, and Peacock does this for the old stuff only. Like, the the live events work for me, no problem. It's just if I'm trying to watch an old episode of Mid-South Wrestling, 
by the time I'm done struggling with the peacock animal, I'm I'm fed up. I'm like, I'll watch something else. I would gladly pay the extra five dollars a month to have WWE Network back because WWE Network, for the most part, worked. Peacock yeah. doesn't. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they they've got to work those kinks out. But but we do need to backtrack for a second if we can. Ah. So before the Jayhawks Russian match. Johnny Weaver was going to interview the American Dream. Ah, yes. You remember that? I do. Dusty's saying, don't come in here. Get away from me. We have a camera-shy Dusty Rhodes. Fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when did you ever think that Dusty Rhodes would be walking away from a camera? I mean, huge news right there. So, in one word, never. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's like, oh, man. no, don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. Uh, I, I did enjoy, you know, the dream saying, "Oh no, I don't want to talk. I don't want to be on TV." Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, with this match, it feels like Starcade. The opening act is off the stage, and now we have the main attraction because now it's Rick Rude against Wahoo McDaniel in a strap match. Rick Rude had just gotten to the promotion, I want to say August or September, so he's brand new, and he's already working the specialty match, but it all made sense. And they did not use the—I've always said there's only one finish to a strap match. We all know what it is, but they didn't do it here. They they had a, a relatively clean finish. You know, it just when they announced Ravishing Rick Rude, it was kind of like I got excited. And then they said Paul Jones and my heart sank. (laughs) My gosh, why didn't you give this guy to Cornette or Dylan? And, and, you know, I mean, he was a guy that they should have been pushing to the moon and they, they missed the boat by having him in this feud and then a tag team where his impacts watered down. And I mean, this guy just had, I had seen him develop over the years. You know, I saw him at first when he was a job guy in Georgia. And then I saw him, you know, in Texas and in Memphis. And you just saw this guy was on this trajectory that he was going to be a major star. And it's kind of baffling to me that you have that talent and you look at the rest of the roster and this is where you place the guy. Just very strange. Steve, they were going to give him a major push, or at least that's what I've always heard. Like putting him in a tag team with Manny Fernandez and making them the tag team champions and having them feud with the Road Warriors was supposedly the first step in him getting a major push. They wanted to kind of introduce him that way. And obviously it all fell apart. He walked out without losing the tag team titles, et cetera. Supposedly, Rude Fernandez and Jones either all hated each other or Rude and Fernandez both hated Jones. I know Paul Jones did an interview once and was like, okay, who didn't you like in the wrestling business? He's like, oh, Manny Fernandez. He's number one. And <laughs> there were there was talk. Um, I know like they at least once they left a Cleveland steamer in the, in the hat Paul Jones wore to cover up his baldness after this night. Oh, my goodness. But, you know, yeah. it, it was, you know, it's a gimmick match. And, and the announcers say, you know, Wahoo's never lost this match before. 300 so, matches. 300 matches. So why is why is Rude agreeing to do Wahoo's match, you know? And again, Wahoo was was getting up there in age. He was getting heavy as well. So they kind of worked around that. Let's see, he was he was 46 at that time as well. 
I mean, they were veterans. They weren't going to do anything that looked foolish. But to me, this was not terribly exciting. And I was like you. I was I was kind of surprised by the finish. It's they they just it's kind of like they just somebody said time and they just said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're just going to get it over with. Uh, Yeah. And you know what? I mentioned that Rude was going to get a big push. They thought they really, truly thought that they could push Rude as a major star with Paul Jones as his manager. And Paul was a really nice guy. I met him once, but he was terrible. I, I am sorry. He it, 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 were, I'm not sure if there are words to describe how bad Paul Jones was as a manager before this match. I know they, he did an interview saying, Hey, you know, we agreed to wrestle Wahoo McDaniel, but we didn't agree to a strap match. And Paul's acting all scared and rude's just, you know, no, nah, I'll beat him. Don't worry about it. And Jones is like, no, I know Wahoo McDaniel. You don't understand. So that was yeah. a pretty good thing. But of course, Jones, you know, is stuttering over his words, <laughs> et cetera. Yeah, it it was painful watching him do those interviews on TBS because it was kind of like he walked up to the microphone, had no idea what he was going to say, and then just froze on the spot. And, and then you've got all the you know all these world class talkers in the company at that time. And and when you stuck a guy with him, it just said you know lower mid card guy. <laughs> you know, it just you, you know you could not put a main event guy with him. Just wouldn't have no, worked. that was the thing. They, for whatever reason, Jim Crockett loved Paul Jones and Rude and Fernandez winning the titles with Paul Jones as their manager was supposed to be like Paul Jones breakthrough moment. He's finally out of this Jimmy Valiant feud and he's a real manager now. I know that sounds crazy, but that was the thought. Jim Crockett, you know, pretty much instructed Dusty, hey, give Paul Jones a push and by the way, that was kind of their thank you to him for getting his head shaved at Starcade, which we'll talk more about later. Yes. Jim Crockett had this trait that's that's probably not good for wrestling promoters and something that Vince McMahon was never saddled with. And that was personal loyalty. <laughs> and, and, you know, in, in a situation like that, your, your business sense should override your personal loyalty to somebody. I mean, you can have a job for the guy somewhere. But, but boy, you know, trying to make him a star, you know, manager in your promotion just was not going to work. You know, Vince had his loyalty, guys, but you're right. They were on the right place of the card. You know, you didn't see Mr. Fuji, man. Well, actually, you did see Mr. Fuji managing the world's heavyweight champion. What am I talking about? <laughs> but, but there was never like a spotlight on Mr. Fuji. Like, he, you know, uh, right. it's like, oh. Fuji's got the heavyweight champion. Hey, Jim Cornette, you need some money? <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they they knew he knew how to place these guys. Exactly. You know, Fred Blassie was effective and then he finally retired in 1986, et cetera. Lou Albano was supposed to be on the loyalty list, but Lou just screwed up too many times. <laughs> anyway. He drank himself off the list. <laughs> exactly. Oh, now we have a Central States title match. Sam Houston defending the Central States title at Starcade against superstar Bill Dundee. Not much to say about this match. Sam was a really good worker. He was a big guy. By the time he was out of the spotlight, he had filled out. But he acted like a little kid in the ring. Like, who's coaching this guy? He was like Bob Backlund, only 10 times worse. <laughs> well, you know, and, and here we get back to kind of like misplaced loyalty. It's like, you know, why in the world are you buying the Kansas City promotion? What is the benefit of that? And what does the Central States title mean to this fan base? It's got minor league written all over it. I mean, 
who were the past, you know, central state champions, Bulldog Bob Brown, Mike George. I mean, it's just these kind of like small town local guys that never did anything out of the territory. And then you're putting on a national stage and it doesn't elevate that brand. It, it kind of devalues your brand. And uh, I thought Houston was really good in terms of the bumps he took. I mean, when he took a bump, he took a bump. I mean, he he, he did it just quicksilver. You know, he really hit the ring hard when he did that. I thought the story made sense of, you know, Dundee's this crafty old veteran and he's finding ways to keep this young kid down. But again, it's kind of like, what does this lead to and where where does it go? Yeah, I mean, Crockett wanted to use Central States as a developmental promotion. And then uh, when Buddy Landell and Bill Dundee came in, like supposedly Dusty just did not want them. And so he sent them to Central States and Buddy did not last long there. Clearly, they did not know how to use superstar Bill Dundee. You give me Bill Dundee in 1986. I would have used him the way Mid-South Wrestling or UWF was using Eddie Gilbert as kind of a, you know, he's a kind of the, what's the word, the shady little guy who's surrounded by big guys. He's still wrestling, but he hides behind his stable mates. I mean, Bill was a really talented wrestler. By this point, he wasn't great in the ring, but he wasn't bad either. But he was an excellent talker. Well, but, I, mean, I mean, you know, you grew up on him. I mean, but just this was late 1986. So. You know, early in 1986, what was he doing in Memphis? You know, he and and Mantell and and Landell and Lawler had that classic match, right? Huh? Now, I mean, part of the reason it was such a classic match was because it was in Memphis and how over they all were in that territory. But but yeah, I agree. He should have been, you know, kind of the player coach role. He he gets this young talent. He's he's mentoring like like Koloff, but he's he's more in the background. He he interferes. Maybe he, you know, gets a stipulation where he has to work a match, but he really doesn't want to. But, you know, if you're going to push a young guy like Sam Houston, you know, push him. But don't do not do it halfway. And it was just meh, you know. It was okay, but it's just kind of like, you know, in, in the grand scheme of the promotion, I just didn't feel like it did a lot. No, it it really didn't, but... I mean, I understand what they're trying to do, too. I mean, they they have their Central States title, and they just give Starcade a match. I don't know. But anyway, now we're getting to the good stuff. Jimmy Valiant versus Paul Jones in a match where Jimmy Valiant had already lost a hair match to Paul Jones during the Great American Bash. So now, I mean, you know, what can Jimmy Valiant put up against Paul Jones? His wife's hair. Oh, my. What a great step. I know they did it in Memphis, but I'd never heard of it before. I mean, it blew my mind that they came up with this step. Obviously, at the time, I knew what was going to happen coming in. We were finally going to see Paul Jones get what was coming to him. And it's funny because in 1986, guys were so vain about their hair. And if you lost this match, you were going to be, Steve, a bald-headed geek. They must have said it a thousand times. Oh, yeah, like the ultimate humiliation. And then, you know, a few years later, Michael Jordan absolutely changes the trend in our society, and people are shaving their head on purpose. And it's like, you can't sell a hair versus hair match anymore because people want to be bald. But uh, you pretty much knew going into it what was going to happen here. I grew up in, you know, watching Memphis TV in the 70s. 
Valiant, when he came in Memphis 77, that's the first guy, you know, besides Lawler that I really said, wow, this, this guy's something special. At that point, he had a really good physique, especially for the Tennessee territory. You know, he had just ooze charisma, great promo. You know, they were doing huge business. And then, you know, you look at him and it's like nine years later in, you know, physically, you can't even say that's the same guy. You know, he doesn't look like the same guy at all. And then, you know, his body language in the ring was was just so over the top. I mean, he's he's throwing these haymakers. And it's not like he's throwing them so the people in the cheap seats can see him. He's throwing them so the people in the cheap seats in the next town can see them. <laughs> I mean, and he gets down and he shakes like he's electrified and everything. But, you know, they, they kept it to four minutes and the crowd got what it wanted. And, and Valiant was over. I mean, he certainly wasn't in any five-star matches in that year. But you're selling tickets or you're not. And he's selling tickets and, and the crowd loved it. I agree, and there was really nothing wrong with it because it was middle-of-the-card comedy. It it was fine, and like you said, it sold tickets. They had an absolutely great campy video that they did before this match took place where Jimmy Valiant is literally like laying out in the street, bottles of alcohol surrounding him, and Big Mama, his wife, comes out, and she turns into Dr. Seuss, and she gets him into a limo, and the whole thing was just fantastic. I will post that on our Facebook page. It was such, such great, campy fun. Did, did, have you, did you ever meet Big Mama? No. Yeah, I, I met her at uh, one of the Mid-Atlantic conventions of the year they had it in Atlanta, and uh, let's just say she's a very interesting woman. <laughs> I believe it. She (laughs) married a pro wrestler. So right there. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting woman. Now, one thing I wanted to say too, they should, first of all, Jones shouldn't have been knocked out. In my opinion, he should have tried to escape Gino Hernandez style. Um, But instead they had him laid out and they shaved his head. Then Valiant gets attacked by Manny Fernandez and Rick Rude. In my own humble opinion, that was a mistake after Jimmy Valiant endured what he had endured over the years from Paul Jones, including getting his beard cut off and his head shaved, should have just had his moment of glory in the ring. I know that's a little thing, but I mean, after watching the match, I was like, it's really really not a little thing, because as I was taking notes throughout the show, I don't think the baby faces won a single match without getting jumped on by the heels afterwards. I mean, huh. every match, it was like if the baby faces won, the heels, you know, were, you know, quote, getting their heat back. But it took away from, hey, you know, the good guy won here. And, and it, they just seemed to do that all night long. That's, you know, that and the blood. I mean, it was like every match at a certain point, it's either the heels going to win or they're going to jump the baby faces after they lose. And everybody's given blood tonight. It's like we're at the blood donation center. (laughs) So those were two things I noticed were were really overdone here. Steve, I counted how many wrestlers bled on this show. What's your guess on the exact number? Who? Twelve? You're off by two. Ten. And my guess would have been more than ten. Yeah. I felt after like three hours, I like checking more. my forehead to see if I was bleeding because I it's like <laughs> everybody's bleeding. It's, you know, I mean, some of these matches, it's one of those things you do it too much and it loses its dramatic impact. Yep. You know? I, mean, I mean, I get it too. It, you know, it's Starcade, you need blood, 
but every match that you did not need to have blood should not have had blood. No, no, way, way overdone, way overdone. Let's talk a little more about Jimmy Valiant. He is with the promotion for another two years after this, but they never found anything for him. He was just another guy who was there. I personally thought one idea that they could have had him feud with Jimmy Garvin, you know, with the valets as part of it. That would have been a natural make sense kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that would have been very, very entertaining. I mean, you, you couldn't put him in kind of a serious feud match at that point, right? It's got to be, you know, some sort of gimmick. He's he's limited in the ring. You don't want to expose him by being out there too long. But you're right. I mean, getting like the valets involved is, is perfect because, you know, that adds a lo- another layer to the story and it spreads out the attention. I mean, I know like, 1984 i mean they were pushing valiant to the moon that year and uh you know he was doing really well but it's tough to see those guys slide down the car and it's hard to do that gracefully yeah i mean like i said i thought there was more they could have done with him but like you know i mean jones turns around gets a new push and valiant just hits the wall and hangs around for another two years but anyway next we have a video for the bunkhouse stampede And Nelson Royal comes out and he explains what a bunkhouse stampede match is. And I thought he did a really good job. He's like, okay, you know, (laughs) I used to love these promos back in the day. It was like, well, where I come from, this is how we finish a feud in a coal miners glove match. And here's why, or, or whatever, just, you know, the goofy kid stuff. Now Nelson is explaining that when you have all these men living in a bunkhouse together sometimes you just gotta get out there and fight and sometimes all 15 20 guys would be fighting each other in whatever they were wearing and the second most dangerous match in wrestling is the battle royal and we're combining these two violent spectacles and you guys got to come out and watch it what did you think of this i i thought it was really well done i love that he was outside with his little fire pit and he's tending the fire you know like like this real life on the range cowboy type thing it wasn't you know, somebody in a sterile studio atmosphere trying to trying to explain this stuff to you. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was really well done. Yeah. And one thing I noticed, too, is we no longer have intermissions in wrestling. I don't know if they still have them at house shows or not, but I mean, this was burned in like we're doing an intermission. And I noticed that they're kind of killing time by over explaining things. They had a uh, someone in the studio after this, but I mean, that was just burned into our brains in 1986, middle of the show. You have an intermission. Well, you know, it was interesting to me because, you know, they're running the two venues. So I'm thinking, okay, what's happening in one venue when the match is in the other? Do they have, you know, a large screen television that people are watching? Is is everybody just, you know, going to the concession stand? So, So the fact that they did it in two different places created an interesting dynamic as well. They had a big screen. In both okay. locations. So okay. if you if you weren't watching live, you were watching on the big screen. Okay. Um, that makes sense. All right. Anyway, next match, Ronnie Garvin against Big Bubba Rogers in a Kentucky street fight. This is the fourth specialty of the night. Uh, we have double juice. I have told this story on the show before, but Ronnie Garvin originally was supposed to get the main event on this night against Ric Flair. And instead he winds up doing a job to Jim Cornette's bodyguard. And, and a Kentucky street fight. Yes. You know, violence in the streets of Kentucky. <laughs> I can think of 
think of, I don't know, horses and basketball and, and guys having wild street fights in, in Kentucky. Um, yeah. Well, we had uh, Bo James on, and Bo, I have to have Bo back on. Bo's a really good guest. He, he talks about some wild times in some of those small towns in Kentucky. I, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. It, it, the land is it's so rural and it's so beautiful. You know, street fight, I, I don't know. That's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Kentucky. But, you know, obviously they use the verbiage in a way that makes it, you know, look like it's advantageous to, to Big Bubba and, and Cornette. You know, I, I thought this was worked well for the positions in the card. You know, Big Bub is the young monster. Garvin is the is the rough veteran. I really pop for the spot where he grabs like a cup of soda and he throws it in. in that was uh, funny. Well, one of the reasons I popped for it really hard was I first saw Garvin in ICW in the early 80s when he was working with the Pafos. And he used to show a lot of videos of him in the Knoxville territory. And one of them, he was wrestling Bob Orton Jr. And they're on the floor and he grabs a cup of soda from some fan in the first row and throws it in Orton's eyes, which ah. leads to. <laughs> so, so it was a spot I had seen. Of course, I haven't seen that particular spot in almost 40 years now because I, I, this was the first time of me seeing Starcade. So just the fact that he brought that back, I thought that was entertaining. And, it, you know, I thought they, they did good bumps for each other. One of the things, like the long bear hug spots, when I first started watching wrestling, you would see guys legitimately give up, tap out to a bear hug. And then it got to the point where they never did. (laughs) So you knew as a fan, like, nothing's going to happen here. This guy's going to fight his way out of it. And and the abdominal stretch was another move like that. It was it was like an automatic victory. And then you never won with that hold again. It was just transitional. So, you know, I thought they went to the well on that a little too often. Uh, sleeper hold, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a big one for me. Yeah. And, and to me, it's like they should have protected some of these moves more. It would have been more dramatic in the long run if you didn't. Even Flair's figure four. I mean, it got to the point where he almost never won with the figure four. It was a, He got reversed and it was just a spot in the match, you know. No, he only uh, won with the figure four on TV against Jobbers. Right, right. But, you know, I mean, Garvin to me was always looked like a legitimate tough guy. You know, he kind of had that Buzz Sawyer feel, not as crazy as Buzz, but always being the aggressor, always attacking. And I, I really liked his in-ring work, you know. And then, you know, Bubba was a young guy at that point, but he knew to listen and he knew what to do. Dusty, it felt like he never knew what he had with Big Bubba Rogers. Here's this super heavyweight. He's just learning how to wrestle, but he's still pretty good in this match, and he could take bumps. And this might surprise some people, but if I had the book in 1986, the main event of Starcade 86 would have been Dusty Rhodes defending the NWA championship against Big Bubba Rogers. That's how highly I thought of Bubba. Well, you know, when you mentioned that bump, one of my first notes was like, you know, Garvin hits him, you know, with a fist early in the match. And not only, you know, does he fall back, but he, I mean, he does a complete flip. I mean, he does a flip bump, you know, for Garvin's fist and, and a guy that size being that agile and then making it look natural. I mean, really just tremendous natural talent to do that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, like I said, they didn't know what they had. And I remember about a year and a half later, he goes to the WWF and Dusty 
has a fit on TV, and it's like, dude, you didn't push him. <laughs> yeah, He's about were... to get a big series against Hogan, and you didn't push him. But anyway, if you were to watch Starcade 86, those who are listening, it's on uh, Peacock, excuse me. If there's one reason to tune in, it's Jim Cornette suit. Oh, my God, this is <laughs> hilarious. And the shoes that match, I'll try to remember to put a picture of it up on the Facebook page. But, my God, Jim, he looks hilarious. One of the funniest people ever in pro wrestling history. You know, I, I thought when when he came out for that match, my thought was until he climbed up onto that scaffold later in the night, Nobody was having a better time in the wrestling business during the mid 80s than Jim Cornette. I mean, he was no. just loving life. I mean, he was exactly where he wanted to be in the world. And, you know, just so tremendously talented. I mean, I'll always be a huge mark for Jim Cornette. I don't agree with everything he said and done, but what a tremendously talented guy. He got to live his dream, and I'm happy for him. And I, you know, I, Really think he is, if he's not the best manager of all time, he's one of the best. And just him coming out in that ridiculous suit, I was dying laughing. So if you haven't seen Starcade 86 in a while, I encourage you to watch it again. It, it was really good. And I'd forgotten about the suit. But anyway, next up is Dusty Rhodes versus Tully Blanchard. And we're going to take a question that was posted on our Facebook page. Aaron Tolis asks, what was the point of having a first blood match when there was so much blood all over the show? Makes it kind of pointless, don't you think? Steve, your thoughts. Well, you know, there, there's certain matches that the heels always win, right? The heels always win a first blood match. They, they yep. never bleed first, but they always win the first blood match. And they always win the coward ways of the flag match. You know, it's always like, oh, it's a tag team. And one team has to waste the flag to lose. And there's a ref bump, and a heel goes and takes the babyface's flag and waves it, and the ref disqualifies the, the babyface team. So, you know, it's just, it's always booked that way. And so it was just an easy way to get Tully a win without Tully really winning. Even as a 21-year-old who didn't know anything other than what he read the magazines, I mean, I saw through this. I'm like, this is how they're going to get the TV title off Dusty Rhodes onto Tully Blanchard without Dusty having to do a job. I, I didn't use the word job, but right. I, without Dusty having to get pinned. And wow, what a shock. That's exactly what happened. To me, like the, the, the entrance of Dusty was like more entertaining than the match himself. You know, they show him from the back walking through, you know, like the backstage area of the Coliseum and they, they're playing this dramatic rock music and it's like Rocky Balboa or something coming out and, and his hair's cut very short and, and he's he's uh, got this little strip above his ears where he shaved his head and he's wearing Tully with a magic marker and it was just so like silly that, you know, it was like, you know, that was more entertaining than the match to me, just like how seriously we were supposed to take this. Uh, let's talk about that. <laughs> in 1986, there was a linebacker for the Oklahoma Sooners named Brian Bosworth, the Boz. Sure, and he yeah. popularized that look, okay, where the sides of your head are shaved and you've got like spiky blonde hair. And by the way, Brian Bosworth is one of the best college football players I've ever seen. You would think three guys were wearing number 44 out there. He was all over the place. He plays the sheriff in the Dr. Pepper Fansville commercials. That's him. But anyway, 
it was silly that Dusty Rhodes, he is over 40 years old, and he's adopting the hairstyle of a college football player. But that, it, was, it was funny. I mean, Tully written on the sides of his head. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was like, it was so silly and so over the top. But, you know, my other first impression, though, I mean, Tully Blanchard and, and James J. Dillon, just a perfect manager-wrestler combination. I mean, two guys that just looked down their nose at everybody, just had this tremendous superiority complex, didn't care what they had to do to, to stay ahead of the game. Uh, I just thought they were a fantastic combination. I, you know what? I agree. Uh, they were, it was different with JJ and the Andersons and flair versus Blanchard. It was almost like it was his favorite son in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just like their personalities were just like mirror images. I mean, they just mesh perfectly together. And, it, uh, but, but uh, talking about blade jobs, though, oh, my gosh, James J. Dillon, it was just ridiculous to the blade job that he did to start that match. Yeah, <laughs> it was like way over the top. And J.J.'s in his suit at ringside, bleeding profusely. Let's talk about what led up to this match, because I thought some of this was brilliant. OK, Tully Blanchard had kind of cost Dusty Rhodes the NWA title back in August by injuring his leg with a chair. Dusty, a few weeks later, has had enough of Tully, gets him in the ring and brutalizes his leg with a chair, putting Tully's leg in a brace and then Tully's on crutches. After that, one of the most insane angles I have ever seen to this day, the four horsemen in two separate cars follow Dusty Rhodes in his car on his way to Jim Crockett's uh, building, whatever it is. And they attack him. They bring a cameraman to film the attack. They tie Dusty to a truck, crucifix style. And only Anderson breaks his hand with a baseball bat. <laughs> Holy, that's over the top for 1986. You know, they used to do some really hardcore things. You think of like Tully and, and, the, and the way he slapped Baby Doll. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, that was like pretty vicious. And, and, and you see, you know, I mean. They were going for legitimate heel heat, and and they got it. But, you know, it also takes, like, half a dozen, dozen guys to bring roads down, right? You couldn't have, like, one or two heels do that. It, you know, it's got to be, like, a whole gang that takes Dusty out. Oh, yeah, um, it was three guys, and, and when Dusty would least expect it. But I, I thought, you know, I mean, I didn't like this particular match, but in general, I thought Blanchard and Rhodes worked really well together, and it was interesting that it, it Blanchard's size versus Dusty, he could make that work with his kind of quickness and sneakiness and, and that kind of, you know, nasty attitude that he had underneath it all. I was surprised how they got to the finish. I mean, I absolutely, I mean, without knowing the result, just knowing the stipulation, I knew Blanchard was going to win. But when I saw Dylan bleeding so heavily, I thought, oh, he's going to wipe some of Dylan's blood on Dusty and the ref will see that. And that's how it's going to end. So the finish was different than i expected but the result was the same yeah and they did something coming into this match i'm not sure the chronology but i thought this was absolutely brilliant tully demanded a first blood match versus dusty Rhodes, and if he didn't get one well jj dylan was doing the talking here all four of the horsemen were going to boycott starcade <laughs> that was brilliant and he was right he's like without the horsemen there is no starcade we want this match yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. He's like, we have leverage here. We need to use the leverage that we have. And, 
that's what a manager should be doing, right? You know, how, how can yeah. I use the talent that I have in a way that benefits me? And if I have to take the talent off the table, you know, I can do that too. So yeah, that, that is a brilliant move. Okay, that wraps up part one of our conversation with Steve Crawford regarding Starcade 86. It has been an excellent conversation. More excellent conversation next week on the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Uh, Starcade 86 was a great event, and we want to talk more about it. Uh, I want to thank Steve for the great work he's done. I want to thank Luke Kippelman, who put a lot of effort into getting this podcast out this week. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Dogs don't kill my balls this weekend. This concludes our podcast day.